0: When you're in one of these caves, it is like being on another planet. You are into such a foreign environment. You're walking on ice or on rock. You've got all this steam and gas coming out from the cave. It obscures your vision. And so you're in this plume of steam, but yet you can still see this beautiful blue and white glacier ice surrounding you it's like a cathedral of ice the walls the ceiling and it's scalloped so it's got these ridges from the airflow which cause these little cup shapes to sort of coat the entire wall and ceiling truly amazing if it wasn't so toxic
1: that's christian Stenner describing his descent into the glacial ice tunnels of mount meager canada's most active volcano Christian is one of the world's leading cavers, an RCGS fellow, and our guest on this episode of Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. I'm your host, David McGuffin. I'm really happy to have Christian Stenner back on the podcast. He joined us a year ago talking about the arc of his amazing caving career. Definitely give that a listen if you haven't already. Since then, the Calgary native became one of the first RCGS Trebek Initiative grantees, which helped fund his expedition into the Mount Meagre volcano, where he and his team made some amazing discoveries about a very active volcanic range just 150 kilometers north of Vancouver, and got to work with NASA and Jet Propulsion Laboratory scientists, had a few near misses amidst the ice and vents and toxic fumes, and came out to share his incredible story with all of us, Christian Stenner. Welcome back to the Explore Podcast.
0: Thank you, David. It's an honor to be here for the second time, which is just amazing.
1: Yeah. So the last time we had you here, you were preparing for this uh, this expedition that you've you've now done into. The Mount Meager volcano. So f- first of all, I think a lot of people listening to this are going to be surprised that there is an active volcano in Canada, because I certainly didn't know that. And so just tell us a bit about the place and,
0: and, and you know, how active this is and what we know about Mount Meager. For sure. And I think that's in my discussions with people, that's something that just seems to blow their minds that Canada has volcanoes at all, uh, let alone that we have one that we know is currently showing activity. Uh, so most of them are dormant or have not had a recent eruptive history. So that's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty amazing place and, and an amazing story. So yeah, I'm, ha- I'm happy to be here to help, uh, and share some of, uh, the discoveries. So this is 150 kilometers north of Vancouver. And, uh, people are probably familiar with the, the Pacific Ring of Fire, right. uh, this ring of volcanoes that's on both sides of the Pacific Ocean. And, uh, they may be, uh, perhaps a little bit more familiar with the Pacific Northwest United States. Mm-hmm. And there's some quite large, volcanoes there uh, such as Mount Rainier and the very famous Mount St. Helens right. uh, and, and those. But what a lot of people don't know is that that, that cascade volcanic arc does extend up north into Canada
1: mm-hmm. and
0: that part is called the Garibaldi volcanic belt. And mm-hmm. so there's a few volcanoes there, Mount Garibaldi uh, being one and Mount Meagre being another that if you were to apply the U.S. Geological Survey's um, sort of volcano risk hazard uh, assessment process to, we have two that are at the very high threat level. And one is Garibaldi and one is Meager. Uh And that threat is based on things like, you know, uh, proximity to populations and, yeah. you know, eruptive history and potential damage from, you know, the modeling of what an eruption might do.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, 150 kilometers from Vancouver. That's yeah. Yeah. Pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And so if you follow the road up there, then you'll hit Squamish and you'll hit uh, Pemberton, which is the closest town uh, of about 5,000 people. And then the Pemberton Valley, which extends north from Pemberton, which perhaps mm-hmm. there's another 5,000 or so that live or work in, in that area. And there is a, a fairly recent eruptive history as far as. Uh, as far as geological timescales are concerned. So right. Mount Meagre was the last explosive eruption in Canada, and that was 2,400 years ago.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: And okay. prior to that, it had another eruption uh, about uh, 8,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these are actually very, you know, quick succession <laughs> eruptions as far as uh, the the history of the Earth. And in, bo- in both of those cases, the the volcano's eruption and and sort of the debris flow did actually go down that entire Pemberton Valley and to the site of the current town of Pemberton. So uh, as far as the hazard goes, yeah, there's a a fairly um, legitimate hazard uh, in that area from volcanic eruption uh, in that the history shows that it, uh, you know, not only did it erupt, that it, you know, historically affected this entire area, which is now, you know, fairly heavily populated.
1: Is there a timeline that, vul- vul- volcanologists, what's the right it, word for that? <laughs> is there a timeline that, you know, I mean, is this due to go or is it, you know, has it got some time to go still?
0: Well, and that's that's really the thing that we're trying to figure out. Mm. Um, so, and the the, the history of, of our expedition um which uh we i mean we've really been working on this for about 4 years uh and previous to that uh, you know you don't you don't sort of just rappel into an active volcano without some you know you don't just do that on a whim or without some mm-hmm. kind of background if we had some experience in exploring what we have started to call glacial volcanic caves. Mm-hmm. And those are, are specifically in the Pacific Northwest and a few other areas in the world. And so, yeah, it was, it was kind of bringing that experience to this one Canadian example, which had not been known about until 2016. So it was a, a helicopter flying over the glacier at the Mount Meager volcanic complex. And the pilot had noticed these huge holes in the glacier ice mm-hmm. with steam coming out of them. Yeah. And of course, that's a little bit peculiar because <laughs> uh, it hadn't been seen mm-hmm. before. And it was a little bit stressful because, well, I mean, what does that mean as far as the volcanic activity? so yeah that has been the challenge: is to try to find out well how active is this volcano is there a danger uh and what you know what might be involved in trying to find that out
1: yeah so let's get to the expedition so this was a first of all you you got a trebek initiative grant through canadian geographic or the rcgs rather um so tell us about your crew and you know what what the mission was for
0: sure and uh that's really a key thing to what made this successful was uh, having uh, grant funding that allowed us to have the right life safety equipment, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. what most of the funding was was uh, meant to be used for, uh, so that we could try to conduct this expedition. So right. the, <laughs> the back history of, of this is, is kind of intriguing as well, what led up to that grant and what mm-hmm. led up to the expedition as well. As I mentioned, we had some experience in other glaciated volcanic caves. And so we started calling them glacial volcanic caves because there wasn't actually a term in scientific literature where steam and holes in glaciers had formed prior to a volcanic eruptions. A lot of the times they'd just be referred to as holes. Or mm-hmm. the most famous example of this is at the summit of Mount Rainier in Washington State. Mm-hmm. And there, since the first ever summit as- ascent in the late 1980s, they knew of this system of steam caves in the crater of the volcano. And it, the caves are basically in glacier ice, but they're formed not by water or by erosion of the glacier uh, through through mechanical means of melt water and those sort of things like most other glacier caves these ones specifically are formed by heat sources from below and so you get heat and volcanic gases that melt these channels these tunnels into the glacier ice and so we had a successful expedition at the summit of mount rainier and uh, that one is now, we know this, uh, to be the world's longest and deepest example of a glacial volcanic cave in the world. When was this? That was, uh, over the course of, uh, 2014 to 2017. Mm-hmm. We did. Okay. We were working yeah. on that project. Multiple visits. Yeah. Um, and that's where we had our first encounters with dangerous volcanic gases in mm-hmm. a subglacial environment.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: so you gotta yeah. imagine you're going into the crater of an active volcano underneath a glacier so you're at the bottom of a glacier in a hole that's formed by volcanic gas and steam like there's a right. lot of challenges to this and one the of the is toxic right i mean that's well, basically yeah one of them yeah. is is the potential for volcanic gas so of course we would always go with equipment like gas monitors mm-hmm. to measure the the concentrations of the gas and and uh A lot of the time, we were able to avoid areas, uh, pockets of volcanic gas. Just because your monitor goes into alarm, it tells you that you're not able to go in that area. And it was on one of those expeditions that I actually, I fell into a pocket of volcanic gas. Yeah. Slipped on a slope and fell down into a low part of the cave system where, and I didn't know it at the time, uh, high amounts of carbon dioxide had accumulated. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I mean, at the summit of Mount Rainier, it's 4,392 meters. You're mm-hmm. at a fairly high elevation and there is an oxygen deficiency due to the altitude. Right. Just a, in a normal time.
1: <laughs> so yeah, yeah.
0: you would literally like tie your boots in the morning and it would, you know, you could be out of breath. So so when I fell down this slope, I was out of breath initially, and that's what I thought it was. It was like, okay, I just fell down a slope, and, you know, I'm I'm a little winded. Yeah. And it was within seconds that I realized that it was not – that wasn't the problem. It was that I was literally – I just did not have enough oxygen to breathe. Wow. And (laughs) –
1: so you're that, not wearing breathing equipment or anything. No, like that. no. Was, yeah,
0: traversing yeah. through the cave, our 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 sort of protocol was to not enter those atmospheres. So you know, that's why we had the gas monitors, and mm. um, the the goal was just to you know stay out of them because uh, there are a lot, large amounts of the cave system that had that had perfectly good breathable air. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd say that was probably the, the time I've been closest to death ever in my entire life.
1: So what I mean what what was the outcome of that? I mean obviously you didn't die. But um Yeah,
0: yeah, thankfully. Um
1: Yeah, but so I mean colleagues were able to get to you. What was the I mean Well, how, it was were sort were of you blacking uh, out?
0: You know, it, it happened so fast and and it wasn't sort of like a life flashing before my eyes type situation. It was more of a just a shock. There was sort of a shock that I realized when I realized what was happening, that it was a lack of oxygen and that like my breathing like had become so disrupted that I didn't think I could actually climb out of this sort of Mm -hmm. low part that I was in. And when I had that realization that I didn't think I could climb out, I sort of, I, I had this sort of a sadness of uh, like, I did not wake up this morning thinking I would die today. And I was just sad. I was kind of sad, like that that's what was about to happen. And then I guess I had a bit of a a realization that I at least had to try to climb out even though I didn't think I could. And and that's what I did. I just sort of had a burst of energy. I I cl- <laughs> climbed up to sort of the next sort of platform that it was sort of flat. And then, um, and even then, so we don't never cave alone. So I was with somebody, but he, like, he didn't know what was happening and I didn't, I couldn't even call out to tell him what was going on. Wow. And and so it was only then that I was able to say, we need to leave, (laughs) uh, need to get out. And so we climbed all the way back out to the closest cave entrance. And that's only then did the gas monitor stop alarming.
1: Wow.
0: And, and yeah, that that taught us a lot it taught us that you know you can't just rely on on sort of a procedural rule that says you stay out of volcanic gas right that yeah. it can happen unintentionally so we uh, and we didn't complete our expedition to explore to fully explore the cave system mm-hmm. so when we went back we went back with two different mitigations one was uh, a specialized emergency breathing device Mm -hmm. that is uh, actually made for use on ships. And so if you have a fire in the hold of your ship, you can grab this thing off the wall and breathe from it. And it's kind of like a rebreather type technology that scuba divers would be familiar with, only it's very compact. So this tiny little air cylinder can give you 15 to 30 minutes of air to, to escape. It's an escape device. Huh. So so that was a thing that we we procured and issued to the various teams uh, that would be doing this type of expedition. Um, so what does that
1: look like? It's like a mouthpiece like in a small tank or
0: how yeah, that... it's uh you know, if you're familiar with an automated external defibrillator, uh, yeah, that's and... it's about that size. and yeah. sort of yeah, you open the case of it and then there's like a little mask. That mm-hmm. you can wear and like a, a nose plug, like some clips for your nose. <laughs> and, uh, and that's all it is. And it sort of just suspends from your neck. Uh, the rest of the device is self-contained and you don't need to do anything. There's no switches or anything. You just literally breathe into it and it starts the airflow wow. and they're single use. Um, yeah. so, so once you use it, it's done. So we had that. But then the other thing we had was, uh, a specialized, Breathing apparatus. So this is typical of what a firefighter might use, Mm self-contained breathing apparatus. But this one was very different. The company that makes them... Makes them for chemical weapons, CBRN like chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear environments, and their primary yeah. market is to like special yeah. forces teams around the so world.
1: So congratulations to you, Christian, for being in that market.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, they were pretty excited to work with us because it was I bet, a, yeah. a different thing uh, that that they could lend their their equipment to. Yeah, definitely and, more positive for sure. Yeah. So yeah, they had one that was uh, made for confined spaces. So really Mm -hmm. small um and we went back to the mount rainier system Mm -hmm. and so we had that and then the i I would say we had a third mitigation as well or a third asset and that was kathleen graham who was my caving partner at mount meager and has been at you know many of the Mount St. Helens projects with us as well. Yeah. These are an international team. We have people from around the world and like we're the two Canadians that are nice. basically the tip of the spear uh, on a lot of them. We've built a bit of a reputation for the, like, you know, pushing, <laughs> pushing, yeah. ha, you know, hard and, and going into these passages and parts of the cave that that are uh, perhaps harder to access. And so, so we were the ones who would go Into the hazardous atmosphere parts of the cave. Mm -hmm. And so we were equipped with these devices and we were able to explore and fully explore the west and east crater cave systems at Mount Rainier. And now Mm -hmm. we've been able to show that that is the, the longest and deepest glacial volcanic cave in the entire world.
1: So at this point, you've, you've now got sort of the basics on how to manage, yeah. you know, the next expedition, really. Right? Yeah,
0: between that and, and Mount St. Helens, which we've mapped and discovered 13 distinct glacial volcanic caves in the crater of Mount St. Helens. Those Great. have all formed since its eruption in 1980, along with a glacier that's formed in the crater, which is truly mm-hmm. amazing. Wow. Um, so we brought all that experience together, and then we had the opportunity of Mount Eager. And that's that's an amazing story in itself because it kind of, I don't know how many uh, amazing things happen in in a pub uh, over (laughs) some drinks, but literally what had happened was I was giving a a talk at uh, Mount Royal University in Calgary. And mm-hmm. one of the people in the audience happened to be the son of a fairly prominent uh scientist at Natural Resources Canada. Mm-hmm. And this was very soon after that helicopter pilot had flown over Mount Meager and reported this discovery of giant holes with steam coming out of the glacier. Oh, fantastic. And the next thing you know, I'm in a meeting um, a few weeks later with uh I'm literally like we're in the pub um and I I've got my laptop open and I'm showing the these volcanologists and scientists these pictures of Mount Rainier and Mount St Helens and like here's the stuff that you know our team has been able to do in mm-hmm. these other places and and they're explaining their problem of Mount Meager and how If you want to know if your volcano is going to erupt, one of the most basic things you can know is what is the temperature of the vent where the gases are coming from. It's called a fumarole. Mm -hmm. What is the temperature of the fumarole vent and what is the composition of the gas? What type of gases are coming out and what are their concentrations and so forth? And on almost any other volcano in the world, you can get close enough to just do that except when your fumarole is underneath a glacier. And the gas that's coming out of that hole in the glacier is full of hydrogen sulfide. Then you can't just do that. And that's exactly what they had done. So the volcanologist, uh, Dr. Glyn Williams-Jones, he had taken a team to the glacier to try to discover a bit more uh, after this report. And they got close to the cave system and they found dead birds on the glacier and were able to measure high levels of hydrogen sulfide coming out of the cave. And so that's how they knew, like, okay, yeah, there's a problem. Birds are flying into the steam cloud and just dropping dead. Wow. And so they wouldn't dare enter the cave system, right? right. So they had a bit of a problem. They could All measure right. gas coming out of the entrance, but by then it's already diffused with the air. Mm-hmm. So it's not really a good measurement. And then the other part is, is we don't know about the fumaroles, right? If the fumaroles are are super high temperature, well, that's indicative of a more active or a magma chamber that's closer to the surface. And if the gas composition has sulfur dioxide in it, that's indicative of a magma chamber that's more active and and sort of turning into a, a, a system that's more likely to erupt. So we have this problem of this, yeah, new discovery, We don't understand a lot about it. Canada doesn't monitor its volcanoes, which is another problem. At Mount St. Helens, there's seismic monitoring. Like they can tell if there's a swarm of earthquakes around. At Mount Rainier, they can tell. None of the volcanoes in Canada have that. So we have no ability to truly sense what's going on other than satellite monitoring, which might see like a deformation of the ground. Right. Huh. So so, yeah, we we have some some issues with really trying to discover what's going on there. And so, yeah, that was the problem. And so after all of this, I said, I think we can help you with your volcano problem. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and with that statement, uh, I was I was volunteering myself and by extension, Katie and a bunch of other folks who had helped us at the other projects to mm-hmm. go to Mount Meager, And we did that. We went in 2019 with our first attempt to do just that. And we, right. uh, <laughs> long story short is that we used the same breathing apparatus to try to go into the cave. Mm-hmm. And what we believed was going to be a chimney. Uh, so basically like a shaft that you might repel down, take the fumarole temperature and then climb the rope back out. It wasn't a shaft. There was like a huge chasm that blocked the way on to what was actually a cave system going more horizontally into the glacier yeah, and so so yeah we had to sort of totally rejig our plan we rigged a rope system that allowed me to do what i'd call like more of a tarzan swing that i went yeah <laughs> <laughs> i swung across the hole to get to the other side and into the cave system And for a moment, I was actually stuck in the middle. Like I didn't actually make it to the other side. I was stuck Mm -hmm. in the cloud of hydrogen sulfide, suspended in the air by my rope. Eventually, I got to the other side and it was able to get in the cave system. But my air supply was very limited and Mm -hmm. I was not able to locate the fumarole source. Right. So it was kind of a bust. But it was another learning experience. And it was really through that that we knew we needed better life support equipment that would give us a longer time uh, underground. And we also wanted to make sure that if we're going to do this um, and we have that, we have that time underground to do mm-hmm. more, that we would make sure we had the ability to do other things that would benefit science. And, one of the things that we've had a uh, sort of a long partnership with is with the nasa jet propulsion lab in uh, california yeah and uh, we were able to test the world's first ice climbing robot in the caves in the crater of mount st helens
1: so just to back up for a second yeah. but why is, so wh- why why the connection with nasa like why is, yeah. how did that happen
0: <clears throat> yeah so these glacial volcanic caves so these holes in ice formed by gas and steam we believe are a good analog environment for specific ocean worlds in our solar system. So the one that I would say is the closest analog is Enceladus and that is a moon of Saturn Mm -hmm. that has an ice crust that's many kilometers thick but beneath that ice crust is a liquid water ocean. Oh, cool. And furthermore, the Cassini spacecraft was able to do a transit of the South Pole of Enceladus. And what's interesting about the South Pole is that there are these plumes. Plumes of vapor, of materials that are being ejected from essentially like a volcano almost oh, Interesting. At, at the South Pole. So it's ejecting into space particles of frozen water and silica and other materials that that are you know potentially originating from that subsurface ocean.
1: That's yeah. fascinating. So the combination of all those things could point to life is that the thinking? That's is...
0: exactly it. If we want to find life in our solar system, one of the best yeah. places to do is to find a place with liquid water yeah. that's protected from the solar radiation. And has other elements that may be conducive to life forming. So Uh, the fact that there was silica found in the plumes is indicative of the same hydrothermal vents that we have at the bottom of Earth's oceans. Amazing. And we know we found life at the hydrothermal vents. So, we have this like amazing combination of things that could lead us to the dis- the first discovery of microbial life outside of Earth, and Enceladus is just really one of those prime candidates for that.
1: Awesome! So, so you got the Jet Propulsion Laboratory now yep. wants to test out this equipment with you at Mount Meager, yeah? And so, who who have you got involved in that?
0: Yeah. So the the specific project that they have is really intriguing it's called eels which is a mission concept which means it's in development it's Mm -hmm. a essentially a giant snake robot (laughs) and it it uses a bunch of segments so there's multiple segments so it can articulate and move and make different shapes yeah and it uses these counter rotating screws with a certain pitch uh, on the screws. So you imagine the two screws are, are pitched in the right direction and rotating in opposite directions, which mm-hmm. allows it to propel forward on an icy surface. Yeah. So it can go forward, backward, sideways, and it can contort itself specifically to be able to navigate terrain and go into holes. Wow. So so the idea is, is that it could go into one of these vents where the gas and the materials are being ejected from Enceladus Yeah. and it can sample, it could sample perhaps the, the, the plume or the vapor or whatever's being ejected. Mm-hmm. It could, it could sample the ice and eventually work its way down to the subsurface ocean and sample there. Amazing. So that's, that's a concept that would, I mean, it's going to take years to develop, uh, and, you know, sort of prove the concept and also to train it because at the speed of light, communication to Saturn takes something like 83 minutes. So if you're going to send a command to a snake robot, you've got to wait 83 minutes, uh, the fastest speed for it to get to the robot and then 83 minutes for a return to say you know whatever was supposed to happen happened so the thing has to be able to have autonomy and so what we're doing on earth is to try to train it in these icy environments so it can ignore so it can ignore obstacles maneuver around hazards and basically Mm -hmm. uh, be able to maneuver and do things on its own So we're training it to be able to do that in places like the Athabasca Glacier uh, in Alberta, Mm -hmm. on some glaciers in the United States. And we took the sensor head, so basically the head of the snake, Mm -hmm. uh, we took it to Mount Meager so that it could test its perception ability. The idea being it has like a LIDAR sensor and some cameras and different sensors that allow it to perceive its world and make a map as it travels. And based on that map and its training, its AI, uh, it can make decisions on where to go. So with that, we had uh, two of the robotics technologists, Dr. Michael Payton and Jeremy Nash, who works Mm -hmm. on the robot's perception abilities. And so they came out with the robot head itself uh, to Mount Meager. Uh, to help with that test. And then we had Dr. Morgan Cable, who had joined us for, um, a planetary science, uh, perspective. So she's a planetary scientist right. and studies ocean worlds. And so her job was she brought out this, a portable spectrometer. Which looked like a phaser gun, like a giant phaser gun type nice. thing, <laughs> and she was she was literally scanning the snow surface, scanning like the mineral, scanning everything. And the spectrometer, it does the scan and it can tell you what kind of mineral you know, you're looking at. That so,
1: sounds like a Star Trek episode right there.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, it was ama- <laughs> it was amazing. Um, so we had her, and that was to to provide some sort of you know, um, geochemical context to mm-hmm. another part of the project, which was yeah. the microbiology. Okay. And so we, uh, we partnered with one of the world's best specialists on polar and ice microbes. And that's Dr. Mm-hmm. Dr. Jill McCookie from the university of Tennessee. Wow. She's done numerous seasons of field work in Antarctica studying microbes that live in the polar uh, ice caps. Mm-hmm. And, and so she's a true expert uh, in, in that type of ecology. And so what we had planned to do was that we would enter the cave system, me and Kathleen. We would go with the specialized breathing apparatus and we would take samples of sediment of ice of whatever we could find that kind of looked interesting Mm -hmm. from inside this toxic cave environment and that she would be able to study them and basically be able to determine how do they exist in this toxic environment? What kind of microbes are there that live there? And are these similar to what we might find on other planets? Mm -hmm. The other thing that was kind of interesting aspect is Think of Enceladus that has this plume of stuff being ejected. Well, here's a place on Earth where we have a plume of gas and steam coming out from a subglacial environment. Mm -hmm. We don't have a lot of places like that. So if we could find out if microbes, if bacteria, if life can be transported on the plume itself through the gas and steam and come out into the surface, that'll be interesting as well. So she Mm -hmm. was doing sampling of the snow surface around the cave entrance. So we're hoping to perhaps discover if bacteria or life forms from the subsurface environment got ejected and are on the surface, right? And can ah, they amazing. exist there?
1: So yeah. to put you in location there, do you guys have a base camp set up outside of this this tunnel? Or
0: Yeah, so we, we actually had mm-hmm. to fly in and out every single day
1: everyday. Yeah, yeah
0: okay. and that that was specifically because even walking around on the glacier. Yeah. When you fly into the volcanic complex, yeah. you will smell the sou- the sulfur gas. Yeah. And even just walking around, you can be in a pocket of sulfur gas just because mm-hmm. the wind changed direction and find yeah, yourself yeah. in yeah. what would exceed the safe level of short-term exposure to hydrogen sulfide.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking about those dead birds flying through the plume,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. the plume
1: right? Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, so even though, uh so myself and Kathleen were meant to be the only ones going deep into the cave system, everybody had to be equipped with a purifying respirator mask and acid gas cartridges to be able to filter the air. Every team had to have gas monitoring equipment and one of those escape breathing devices because falling into a crevasse On a Mm -hmm. glacier in this environment means that not only are you in a crevasse and there's that problem, but hydrogen sulfide, carbon dioxide, these volcanic gases collect Mm. preferentially at low spots. So imagine, you know, falling into a crevasse and it's not even the crevasse that kills you. It's that you're in a pocket of hydrogen sulfide at the bottom of the thing. So we had to make sure that everyone was trained, equipped uh, knowing the protocols for the different gas levels and the different types of volcanic gases. So they say that uh, <laughs> amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics. And as you've mm-hmm. seen from everything I've described here,
1: yeah. putting
0: in the framework for success was the most important thing to this entire expedition. And it yeah. was really having the right team having the right equipment, having the right um, uh, safety equipment, life, uh, life support equipment, all of it had to come together. And the safety part was important too because I had a command and control problem in that mm-hmm. if I am in the cave system along with Kathleen, I've got all these robot technologists and scientists all around the surface of the glacier. And they need the right parameters to be able to work and do and achieve great things with their knowledge, but they also needed some support. And so some of our our, um, team from the United States who was uh, proficient uh, with us in in the safety components of the Mount Rainier and Mount St. Helens expeditions came Mm -hmm. with us. So Eddie Cartaya, Scotland, and Ben Swerdlow were the primary safety folks. And then we had a paramedic as well, Tom Gall, uh, who also had managed, uh, prior to his career in firefighting, had managed the hazmat response mm-hmm. for his county, like his fire department. Um, right. So he he had some knowledge of, of volcanic gas uh, for that. So with, sure. with all of this together, um, and with Dr. Glyn Williams-Jones, the volcanologist who kind of started the whole, <laughs> the yeah. whole thing... We had this team and it was all sort of all collected around this ability to safely work and do science Mm -hmm. in this hazardous area, this high consequence environment.
1: So you're going into this uh, into this tunnel. So over a period of what six days? Is that right?
0: Yeah, we th- we were there for about about six days total, but uh, some of those days were preparation, yeah. uh, and then like you know doing the processing of samples at the end.
1: Sure. And um, who all is going into the tunnel?
0: So in the end, uh, myself and Kathleen went mm. deep into the tunnel, so but we you- actually were able to find the volcanic gas levels in the upper level of the tunnel. We're just below the level of what we call immediate danger to life and health. And Mm -hmm. we're within the range of what an air purifying respirator mask would um, protect you from. So we actually unexpectedly were able to get the entire science team short distance into the cave <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: um, was that a couple hundred meters sort of thing or what is yeah
0: i would say yeah. more like perhaps 25 meters, you know, yeah, to 50 yeah. meters yeah it wasn't yeah. wasn't a long like a long distance but it was enough for them to see this what's an incredible they a sense. Yeah. incredible environment um yeah.
1: what does it look like in there like when you know like when oh, you're 25 feet in further it's, in
0: It's just such an amazing place. And and to say it's a planetary analog is more than just the characteristics. It's like it's the look of the place. When you're in one of these caves, it is like being on another planet. You are into such a foreign environment. You're walking on ice or on rock, deeper in the cave on rock. You've got all this steam and gas coming out from the cave. It obscures your vision. And so you're in this plume of steam, but yet you can still see this beautiful blue and white glacier ice surrounding you. It's like a cathedral of ice. The walls, the ceiling, and it's scalloped. So it's got these ridges from the airflow, which cause these little cup shapes to, to sort of coat the entire wall and ceiling. Mm-hmm. And it's just a magical place to, to be in and to look at. Uh, yeah, truly amazing if it wasn't so toxic. and, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and are, you,
1: are you feeling your way through this? I mean, how, how are you moving forward?
0: Yeah, so at the upper level, it was fairly easy to move because the steam cloud would sort of come and go a little bit and you could, you could see enough to you know, make your way through. Once we got deeper into the cave, that's where it changed a bit. And the, the vision that we had perhaps could be only a few feet. So what had happened was, is we found our first obstacles in the cave system. And that was a series of rappels. So we kind of got to a ledge where we could see through the steam we believe we could see the rocky surface of the underside of the glacier so basically like the bedrock almost the Mm -hmm. surface of the volcano and that's what we were looking for if heat and gas are coming out from this subglacial place it's probably melted all the ice around it and so we should expect to find the the fumarole vent in a place of rock, not just coming out of a hole in the ice. And so we thought we could see that, but we would have to rappel down into this deeper part of the cave. So that became the first obstacle. We ended up having two short rappels, which me and Katie went down. And from doing those rappels, um, I ended up landing on a surface of rock. And the first thing I did when when I got down there was to take out a thermal camera, a thermal imager. It's kind of like that predator vision where you can mm-hmm. see the hot temperatures are white and red and then the cold temperatures yeah, are blue. Very cool. And so I could actually kind of see a little bit by using the thermal camera because it it would cut through some of the vapor. Mm-hmm. And I started looking for the hot spot. And I was looking around and I found uh, a whole bunch of hot rocks. So I was, on, uh, I was on my crampons, my mountaineering boots. I've got all my gear. I've got this breathing apparatus and this mask, which obscures your vision and the steam's coming from everywhere. But I found a spot of about 90 degrees Celsius on the floor. Wow. And so the floor uh, ranged from, say, 30 to 70 degrees in, in most of the places. So that's just an amazing thing. You're underneath a glacier, but you're walking on a floor of like 50 degree Celsius rocks.
1: I know from our previous conversation, you're usually in like five degree temperatures in caves, aren't you? And yeah, like
0: caves tend to be fairly cold. So this was yeah. quite a bit different. Um, The ambient air, even once it had diffused, was was around you know fifteen degrees, which was super warm for any mm-hmm. compared to even the other glacial volcanic caves we've been in. And so I found this hot spot. By then, Katie had rappelled down as well. And then sort of like, hey, we found a hot spot, and there was sediment all around it. So we're like, perfect, let's take some samples of this sediment. Because who knows what kind of weird life forms can mm-hmm. be living, you know, perhaps they live off of the sulfur gas or perhaps they can eat the volcanic rock and use it for energy, right? These are the type of microorganisms that have like just dis- different pathways from life. Keto- chemoautotrophs, so they're, they don't use photosynthesis to survive. Uh, they're in this perpetually dark environment with with very little nutrients, so they they've adapted. They've found other ways to live. So yeah, that was our goal. Let's start taking the samples. So while Katie was doing that, I I went for a little bit of a wander. I'm like, hey, what where else can I find some hot spots? And is there a hotter spot? And I had to be very careful because every once in a while we would hear these huge booms crashes echoing through the cave passages and we believe that what was happening was the cave itself was disintegrating around us which you should expect because the heat is melting the ice from below the glacier chunks of the ceiling and the walls are prone to fall off and crash onto the rock below So we had a a few of those crashes in and around us, and there was so much steam that we didn't know where they were even coming from, but we knew they sounded close. (laughs) So we're trying to work fast, um, and and sort of like do our, our, our work and find this, you know, find the source of the gas, find the vent, take some samples and get the heck out of there. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I, I moved away from, from Katie and then, I found another hotspot. So what I ended up doing was walking on top of a little mound of boulders. And just then my gas monitor went into alarm. We had custom configured these. And so the alarm I was hearing was that it was over range. It was beyond the range that gas monitor could even detect for hydrogen sulfide. It was like off the charts for the monitor to detect. Wow. So I hit that. My alarm goes off. So I'm like, okay, I look and I silence the alarm. I'm, I'm acknowledging it. And then my vision got totally obscured. I could not even see anything around me. I was sort of stuck in the plume of gas. I was in this hydrogen sulfide cloud. And I was like, literally look down towards my feet and I'm like, I don't even know where to step because I can't see anything. And, and so I I was just in a, in a brief moment of kind of like, we've learned so much about these environments, about how to work and move in them. And yet Mm -hmm. this was thinking, and I knew visibility would be a problem. I did not expect zero visibility to be a problem And so it was a little bit of that shock and kind of that disappointment and sadness again. It was kind of like, well, (laughs) all I can really do is is sort of think back to there's a bit of a mantra. And that's slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And so rather than panic and try to like escape from where I was and like take the wrong step and break my ankle, after which I would eventually run out of air and probably die before being rescued. Mm -hmm. Like I just, I I needed to sort of take a minute, relax. And then I was able to take little itty bitty steps, a little, like a few centimeters at a time and kind of get off the boulder mound that I was on and back to some more level ground. And so over the course of, you know, I, I don't know how long it took, probably not very long. I was able to kind of inch my way back, back over to where Katie was at which time she was already almost finished collecting some some soil and stuff like digging we had sterile instruments to dig with
1: yeah
0: um, and so I made my way back and I was like good news I found the vent
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Bad news was as I had wandered away from her which was a bad protocol right because like we couldn't really even see each other
1: can and, you can you communicate
0: yes actually. That was another thing we had to mitigate. And we used a specialized throat microphone, which was Mm. configured to um, talk based on voice activation. Mm. And so the good thing was, is there can be echoes and there can be like waterfalls in these caves that cause a lot of noise and stuff like that. So the throat microphone would only communicate when we talked. Okay. And that was something we could wear while wearing these masks. Amazing. And so, yeah, we, we ended up, um, she was able to kind of get some sampling sediments together. And then I made the mistake of, of kneeling down on the floor. And like immediately burned my knees. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and so then I had to move into a crouch. And then so she's scooping the sediment into this plastic bag that we had for the sample collection. And literally it's like burning my hands as she's scooping it in. And so wow, we had wow. to kind of tie that up. And and then so we took a few different samples. And then the amazing thing was we found this water. We found a pool of water underneath the glacier. And then so right away she went, and we were prepared for all of this. She took a sample of the water in this sterile bottle. And then we found that this hole, this place that we had rappelled into, was not the end of the cave. Oh,
1: man. There
0: was a low ceiling, and the cave started dropping down into the darkness as far as we could see. And so there was a tunnel that continued underneath the glacier. And oh, we're like... Wow. Well, we're out of sampling supplies and our air supply, we have to be very mindful of our air supply, was such that it was time to kind of turn around. So, I mean, if that's all we had done, we would have been hugely successful. Yeah. But as an explorer, that <laughs> loose end is going to haunt you. Yeah. So we ended up going back the next day. Uh-huh. Armed with more sampling supplies, armed with more, you know, um, more equipment and everything we would need and everything we had learned from day one. Or, or that was really day two, actually, uh, I think, uh, underneath the, the glacier. And so on, on the third day, uh, we went in, we rappelled down past the point that we had reached, and we had followed essentially the cave passage down some slopes to where we found an underground river a subglacial river of what was probably meltwater that had sort of intruded into the cave passage Mm -hmm. and sort followed the water down through this steamy tunnel. It was maybe about three meters high and eight meters wide Mm -hmm. and ended up transiting under the glacier all the way to the second cave entrance. So we had essentially two big holes in the glacier and we ended up going from the top hole underneath the glacier all the way to the bottom hole and found ourselves in a giant room. It was like like I described like a cathedral of this ice with these uh, scalloped ice walls. We found uh, lots of ice fall on the floor which mm-hmm. was indicative of all the huge booming crashes right. that we had heard. So <laughs> we did not linger in this place. No. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, but we were able to take some samples of ice. We were able to take some sediment samples. And we found a really cool spot where the river was flowing over an area of heated ground. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, this is kind of cool because the ground there was about 40 centimeters or 40 degrees Celsius and the water was flowing over it. So we had this goopy, muddy sediment, which which I was able to take some samples of. Right. And uh, we essentially had a turnaround time, uh, again, for air supply and, and sampling materials. And it, it just kind of goes to show that we still don't know much about these environments and a volcano the the gas measurements we're taking are sort of like a snapshot in time right Mm -hmm. and that they can vary and we (laughs) on our way back climbing back up the slopes to get to the place we had to climb the ropes to repel back uh where we had repelled down we had to climb Mm -hmm. the ropes back out um on our way back out we hit all the volcanic gases. So it's like the volcano had burped or something. And so we had the hydrogen sulfide, we had sulfur dioxide, we had carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. And the sulfur dioxide and hydrogen sulfide were both beyond the detection range of our gas monitors. Mm -hmm. It was a little unexpected. Uh, We were hoping to not find uh, sulfur dioxide because that's Mm -hmm. one of those gases that is more indicative of an active magma chamber. Right. So that was a bit surprising. We actually were hopeful and, and sort of thinking that we would only find hydrogen sulfide. I mean, the hydrogen sulfide is bad enough, but it, it was yeah. a bit of a concern. Uh, and the carbon monoxide was a little unexpected as well. Um, but the good news was, from a volcanology perspective, these measurements are actually quite low. And although they are highly toxic to humans, they're, they're sort of were a good result. So Dr. Glenn Williams Jones, he had a look at the data and he's like, yeah, actually, this is actually like, this is good. And so,
1: so for our listeners in Southern BC, this means it's not about to erupt. Is that what (laughs) good
0: means? Well, I mean, it's not an exact science, but these measurements show that the volcanic system should be considered semi dormant. Okay, so Mm -hmm. it's active, but it's not like, yeah, like highly active, like boiling lava lake type active, right? Right. And then the other thing was is the 90 degrees Celsius temperatures, which were the highest that we measured. We measured that in a few spots. 90 degrees Celsius is below boiling point. Mm -hmm. And so for a below boiling point fumarole vent, that's another good indicator for a volcanology perspective. If they were 200 degrees or 300 degrees, (laughs) we'd have more, more cause to worry. Okay. So, so yeah. And and so these were the first direct measurements taken from a Canadian volcano. And that was an amazing, amazing thing to be able to bring back. So not only to explore a cave system, which for Mm -hmm. as a caver itself is, is truly, it's, you know, an amazing thing to be able to be in a place that no human has ever been to before. But to be able to take the measurements that have an impact on the, you know, 10,000 people that live and work in that area and sort of give a little bit of comfort to the, the scientific community as to the workings of the volcano. This missing piece of the puzzle was an yeah, amazing thing to be able to do.
1: Yeah. What about the NASA side of things too? Yeah. Cause you've got all this amazing equipment with we, you. I mean, how, how are they, how are they reacting to we,
0: it? We, we ended up taking out, ah, uh, Between the samples the microbiologist took from the surface and the samples we took from in the cave, we ended up with, I think, 67 different samples of ice, of snow, of sediment. And that's the part that takes a lot of time because they have to sequence them, try to grow them in a culture and and that sort of thing. But they've already sequenced some of the samples and already grown in culture some of the bacteria and a yeast Mm that we had taken from this environment. And the results are already starting to show, yes, A, there's life. There is life that exists in this toxic environment. The next step is to determine how does that life exist? Is mm-hmm. Are there organisms that can metabolize the sulfur gas, for example, or or that sort of thing? The other thing we're looking at is that me and Katie both wore these devices to sample the plume Nobody has ever sampled a plume like this from a volcanic subglacial environment before. So if we can find that there was bacteria just literally riding the cloud of gas, that'll be really interesting as a planetary analog. So those are all results we're kind of still waiting for, but we're quite hopeful. And then lastly was the eel sensor head. Yeah. Yeah. So they were able to lower the sensor head into the plume itself and, it, you know, it started to try to make its 3D maps and do its thing. So they were able to do a number of tests and they collected some 500 gigabytes of data from the uh, mapping component uh, from the sensor data. And so from all of the various field testing and everything they've done uh, to train the robot, it is now able to move autonomously. So once we got back from Mount Meager, they connected the sensor head to the snake robot body for the first time. And then they did all the programming. And so now EEL's prototype can actually move autonomously through icy terrain and navigate around obstacles.
1: Wow. So that's a huge breakthrough then, really. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. it's
0: pretty amazing. Uh, So yeah, I was just at, like just before this podcast, I was Mm -hmm. at NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. They had invited me to give a talk and uh, with the very scientific sounding um, title of... The morphology and morphodynamics of glaciovolcanic caves and their use as planetary analogs. <laughs> and uh, as part of the the visit, I was there for a few days. Uh, I was able to visit the Eels Lab and see and drive the the uh, right, right. current prototype um, and have a bunch of meetings to talk about the use of these type of caves as planetary analogs for more types of robot mobility testing and microbiology uh, for uh, astrobiology or exobiology mm-hmm. uh, applications.
1: Yeah. So, is yeah. there a timeline for when these actually may go into space?
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the EELS is, as I said, it's a mission concept, which means it's just yeah. in development. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. need a lot of funding, obviously, to make it a, an actual mission that will fly and yeah. I mean, the time frame is really something like 2040 to launch yeah, and then yeah. 10 years to get to Enceladus. So like 2050 for it to actually land.
1: Yeah, cool. So
0: yeah, yeah, I think if you work at, at NASA, you kind of have that expectation. That, like, <laughs> either the project will fly after you retire or, yeah. <laughs> or you yeah. might work on a thing for like your entire life. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's That's amazing. Uh, It's a building,
1: building cathedrals in the middle ages. Oh, no
0: kidding. Yeah. 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 So we're, we're so excited about, I mean, really what we had done, taking the first measurements from, from a volcano in Canada, um, we're, we're essentially going to a place that no human had ever been to before. We're Mm -hmm. using, Uh, breathing apparatus that had never been used in that environment. This was a better breathing apparatus than the one we had in 2019, more advanced, bigger, better range, better filtration ability against the volcanic gas into an environment. We don't truly understand really anyways, like even after eight years of exploring glacial volcanic caves, there are only a few places on the entire planet that we know that they exist. And we're still trying to put the pieces together of what the morphology of these void spaces is like. Like, What is that true environment? What lives there? What can live there? We're doing all of this. And it's just like a series of firsts. And the NASA folks that were with us were like, you guys are more like astronauts than we are than we are. Uh, <laughs> that was the, that's the, that that's was, a high compliment. That was wow. the comment. It was like we're about to do a spacewalk into the volcano. Like and it yeah. kinda almost looks that way with this backpack with you know the, yeah. the air tanks and this you know, like breathing hose and mask and and then we've yeah. got all this like climbing equipment for repelling. We've got ice ice axes and uh, ascending gear for the rope and all of our, you know, caving stuff, uh, crampons and and all this stuff. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a a picture of just this really weird combination of glacier ice climbing, caving, hazardous atmosphere equipment that, uh, I mean, this is just such a unique environment that it needs all of that.
1: Amazing. Maybe there's a future for you in the Canadian space agency. Christian.
0: (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I mean, if they need more people to repel into holes full of toxic <laughs> exactly. gas, uh, you have at least, yeah. And I mean, it's a, it's a matter of things lining up. And, um, <laughs> the, the quote that I kind of apply to these sort of situations is to put yourself in the place of greatest potential. Mm-hmm. And things just sort of lined up with the experience and this sort yeah. of timely discovery of a glacial volcanic cave in Canada and having the right team to yeah. be able to do it and the right logistics and the right equipment uh, to do it. was It was all, everything sort of came together and mm-hmm. we were able to do it safely. Um, yeah. Uh, so everybody came back. <laughs> okay, okay. Every, everybody came back and such a diverse team and, and all of that. So as a caver, we're used to going in and mapping out caves. And our, our goal as an explorer is always to add to our knowledge of the world. And so mm-hmm. if we had done nothing else but to just go into the cave and map it and share that map, that data of what this environment looks like with the community or to publish on it, that's Mm -hmm. usually enough as an explorer we've added to it like it's more than just you go and you take a selfie or you you know you do something that's more a personal challenge this is is adding to our 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 scientific knowledge but to do it and to do all of this other combined and integrated science um, that actually helps understand our hazard to the communities or will help in the technology development for space missions or to help us understand the biology of what might exist on other worlds like mm-hmm. the project just had a little bit of everything and that's why I think I'm on cloud 9 about it still like yeah, months afterwards right. yeah, that yeah you can hear that yeah there was just so much that happened that and so many aspects to the story that i uh, yeah my head is spinning and it's it continues to spin
1: yeah no i can believe it and thanks so much for sharing all this i mean it's an an incredible story and there's still lots as you say still lots to learn coming out of coming out of that six days that you spent up there um i'm i'm always curious when when we're exploring in canada and around the world really but in canada like major landforms like mountains i mean these this is mount meager but it has it's in the lilwat first nation territory and it it has a that those people have a history with that mountain, that yeah. mountain range. Um, do you know what the, the indigenous name is for Mount Meagre and what that means?
0: I do actually. And you, you bring up a really good point that, I mean, prior to the, um, you know, Western science coming in determining, oh, we had an eruption 2,400 years ago. We had an eruption 8,000 years ago and looking at the geology and all the evidence that sort of, um, points us to those conclusions Mm -hmm. there is a long history um with the the local indigenous people so the the that area is on the the shared and unceded uh territory of the squamish nation and the lilwat nation Mm -hmm. and they do have an oral history uh which um does give you a clue to the eruptive nature of the mount meager complex so the word is quel quelushten which they would translate in, in which is the, the Lilwat uh, language. The, the word is something along the lines of burned face place or cooked face mm. place. And so, I mean, the, the oral history isn't mine to repeat, but they, they yeah. do have, uh, obviously, a, a uh, <laughs> a history of what sounds like volcanism to, yeah. to, um, go back in their, in their, um, in their history and, and back in their, you know, generations of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we're very thankful that uh, we're able to, to interact with that, the community as well. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, learn a little bit more about, about their history and their knowledge yeah. of the mountain too.
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, the phrase that's come up in this podcast a number of times is that traditional knowledge is science, right? I mean, yes. there is, yeah. yeah, it's woven, in fact, you know, absolutely deeply. Well, listen, Christian, thank you again for taking us into our amazing planet. You know, it's it's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I should add, too, you are going to be doing a CanGeo talk, I think, here in Ottawa at the CGS headquarters soon. Can you tell us about that, when that is? and
0: I can, yes. Yeah, so uh, myself and, and Katie are actually coming both. We're going to tag team a Kanjio talk on May 4th at the uh, RCGS headquarters. And it'll be about the Mount Meager project. So we've basically got the the story that I've told you now, but take that story and add a bunch of amazing photographs and video. Yeah. yeah. And you'll, yeah. you know, to be able to truly see inside some of the environment and, and have a little bit of that experience, um,
1: fantastic uh, yeah.
0: along with our, our storytelling uh, I think that'll yeah. be an amazing opportunity sure
1: and an opportunity to ask you guys questions too for listeners out there if they yes we want, want to pepper you with questions this is the venue for it so and I think rcgs.org you can find all that information yes awesome well thanks again Christian always a pleasure
0: thanks again David the, uh, yeah I totally enjoy the podcast uh, and all the amazing guests you have so uh, it's again it's an honor to be here and uh, to have this opportunity. Thank you for doing what you do.
1: Yeah, thank you. And thank all of you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate and review us where you listen. It helps more people to find these interviews and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much back of the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling you about We have Simpson about June 10th, with a fur brigade, consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs.
0: For us, it means that in history, is very strong, We flew low over every inch of the
1: country that could be, we're hoping that he would fire at it. Oh, I guess 160. of a first for Canada.